Well, good morning. Good to see everybody. I was um, reading on the internet this week, and I, I don't know any of the details, I only can tell you what I read, but apparently there's a little bit of some, there's some concern in Spain right now with what's happening politically. Um, and th doesn't this always happen whenever you have kind of a political establishment? They always worry about groups from the left and groups from the right and what they might do. Well, apparently in Spain, there's a group on the left that's becoming more and more powerful. So the status quo, the establishment is like really concerned. And you've known it can happen from the right side too. You know what's happened in our country. With, when some, for some people, when you say Tea Party, some people really like it and other people are going like, oh, they're going to ruin everything, right? I, I mean, it's just kind of the way status quo establishment doesn't like pressures from either side, does it? That's always been true of humanity. So if you go back to the time of Christ in the first century, one of the things you'll notice, and you can read about this with some of the other authors of antiquity, there's a whole series of would-be prophets and messiahs who come on the scene in the first century. Prior to Christ, during the time of Christ, after Christ. And it the, the political religious establishment is deeply troubled by that. So they always kind of have their ways of putting it down. But, but nobody can, 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 can unravel that whole system more or trouble them more than Jesus Christ. And when we come to Luke chapter 20, we find that we are coming to the last week, what we call Passion Week. Matter of fact, we're calling the series that's going to run us from now clear up through Easter. We're calling it um, One Week That Would Change the World. And you will find every imaginable tension and pressure you can imagine. There will be deep-seated love and compassion represented. And there will be stark hatred and wickedness. There will be subversion there will be direct challenge. There will be all kinds of things we're going to find over these next couple weeks. One week that would change the world. Well, how did it start? On Sunday, what we call Palm Sunday, Jesus comes into the city. Remember where he goes? Tim preached on this several weeks back. He goes to the temple. And remember, he flips over, over those tables and he talks totally frustrates the religious establishment, doesn't he? And they've got to do something about it. And, and I want you to notice, coming out of that whole experience, they're panic-stricken. At, at the end of Luke chapter 19, listen to what the last two verses of Luke 19 says. It says, And Jesus was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. But they could not find anything that they might do for all the people were hanging upon his words. How would you feel? You're part of the Sanhedrin. You're a religious leader. You're trying to hold the whole thing together. Hold Rome out of balance. Control the people. Do your own thing. And this Jesus guy comes into town and people are praising him and worshiping and he's flipping over tables and you're troubled. So what you do is you start by kind of standing on the outside and looking in and you're saying, watch him. If he makes one mistake or says something he shouldn't say, 
He's out. I mean, look what happened to Brian Williams this week, right? Doesn't take much sometimes, does it? So they stood on the outside spectating and they're waiting. But the problem was, folks, nothing happened that they can use against them. The people liked him more. And they're panic-stricken. So in chapter 20, they have to come up with another plan. They can't wait. It's not going to work. They've got to go and have direct contact. So they choose to go and confront Jesus himself, which was a huge mistake. And so today, we're going to look at chapter 20, verses 1 to 19. And, and then what you're going to find in this, it, it, next week, they use a different approach. Because this first approach, all I can tell you is it fails miserably. But nonetheless, they give it a try. So let's kind of walk our way through it. And I guess this is what I want you to watch for. Yes, we're going to talk about the threat Jesus is to the status quo for them. But I want you to be thinking about something as we talk about them. Is Jesus not still a threat to our status quo today? So things really haven't changed. I mean, they have changed. And there's something unique here. But there's ample application, which we'll get to at the end. Well, let's walk it through. Notice what they do here. And if you, have, you, you have notes in the bulletin, but you don't need them. I, I can just read here too. Look at how it starts out in chapter 20, verse 1. And it came about on one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple, probably on Tuesday of, of um, Passion Week, and preaching the gospel, that the chief priests and scribes with the elders confronted him. They're not messing around, folks. You get the chief priest, let's get the scribes, they know the text, leading people, the people, we're all going to him, man. We're going to make this direct and we're going to handle this baby. Right? So they just, everybody's in on it. And they spoke to him saying, verse 2, tell us by what authority you're doing these things and who is the one who gave you this authority? Now, honestly, do you think that they didn't know what he thought on that one? Had he never said anything about doing his father's will? Being a representative of God? I mean, like, come on. And, I, and, and, and Jesus, I, I, Jesus is so brilliant. Jesus listens to their question, and he knows that for them, they're merely using it in some way to be subversive. So he does something absolutely brilliant. Because think about it. They viewed themselves as the elite. They had been trained. They were in leadership. What was Jesus? He was, he was a heck from Galilee. He was never trained under their system. Who does he think he is? Coming on the scene with all these messianic claims. We're the experts. Who do you think you are? Who gives you that authority? Well, we kind of know what you're going to say. But anyway, we'll ask you anyway, you hick. And Jesus says, Jesus responds with a question. And he chooses another character in his question by the name of John the Baptist. He was also an outsider, wasn't he? He wasn't a part of the establishment. He was really a hick. I mean, he grew up in the desert. Look at what Jesus says. But he was loved by the people. And he answered and said to them, verse 3, I shall also ask you a question and you tell me. Was the baptism of John 
from heaven or from men? Oh, that's a great question. So you want to talk about Hicks? We'll talk about Hicks. How about John the Baptist, who was greatly loved by the people, believed to be a prophet from God? What do you guys think? Uh, do, you, do you think he was from heaven? Or do you think he wasn't? And man, they're in a quandary, aren't they? I mean, they'd come with all their force. All the leaders are there. <laughs> Look what happens. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, uh, if we say from heaven, he will say to them, why did you not believe him? Because to whom did John point? Uh, but if we say from men, which is what we'd like to say, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. Would you love to have been part of that group? When they, man, what the, who, whose idea was it to ask him this question in the first place? I don't know. I don't know what they would have thought. But, but I mean, there may have been some other bantering going on there. So they, they talk it over and they say, we can't win with either answer. And rather than being men of integrity, what do they do in verse 7? And they answered that they did not know where it came from. The religious leaders of the day have no idea where John the Baptist came from. Was that an in-your-face or what? We don't know. <laughs> Look at what Jesus does. Verse 8. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. If you don't have enough integrity to even say what you think, then your question was not even legitimate to start with because you don't really want an answer. You just want you to push your own agenda. So you know what? You answer mine before you answer mine. I'm not going to answer yours. Wow. Now, you know what's interesting in the passage? <laughs> Jesus will go on to indirectly answer their question. Not directly, but indirectly through a parable. And what the religious leaders don't realize is they thought when they were approaching Jesus, they had nailed him, all of us together, let's ask him this question and we'll jump all over it. And now they're beginning to backpedal. And Jesus is going to look at the crowd as a whole and tell them a parable about them. So who's on the offensive and who's on the defensive? Verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. Look, Jesus starts telling a parable like this in a setting like this. Somebody's in big trouble. And that's what we're going to find. It says, a, a man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. Frankly, folks, there's nothing unusual about that. In the first century in particular, there was a lot of landowners who owned land but even lived somewhere else. And apparently this particular guy came along, he got the, the, the vines started and so forth, then he rented it out to farmers and typically, I, I, I am not a farmer, I'm not the son of a farmer, so I always have to get this information from somebody else, so I, I readily admit all that. But it, it appears that it takes about four years before grapes will actually start growing on a vine. Is that, is it, do we have any great people, arborists in here? Okay, whatever. That's what I'm told, right? So he goes away. This guy goes away for a period of time, and he actually rents it out to tenant farmers 
who will then be in charge of it. And then at some point in the future, he'll come back and he'll want a portion of what they actually make, right? Because it's his land. That's how it works. Makes a lot of sense. So Jesus is telling the story and people are sitting there going, oh yeah, yeah, this is kind of what happens. You know, people go away and then they send their slaves and their slaves come and they pay them a portion and that's how our system works. Okay. Well, that didn't work that way in this story though. Notice what he says. And at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order that they might give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Now, if you're part of the people listening to this story, you're saying to yourself, that's not good. <laughs> that's not how it works. That's not how our system works. That's disruptive. That's, that's, that's dumb. But that's what happens. Verse 11. And the owner proceeded to send another slave. And they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. Uh-oh. Strike two. Verse 12. And he proceeded to send a third and this also they wounded and cast out. That's a pretty gracious uh, landowner, isn't it? He could have come in and wiped them all out immediately. After the first one slave in, I'm here to get the stuff, beat them up, mock them, kick them, send them out. Second guy, same thing. Third guy, same thing. I don't know about you, but I'm getting pretty ticked off if I'm the landowner. That's my land. I allowed you to work it. I don't take it all, but I take some of it because it's mine. I mean, that's not unreasonable, is it? Look at verse 13. Talking about a patient man. And the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son, which only occurs one other time in Luke's gospel when God the Father addresses God the Son at the baptism. This is my beloved son. Anyway, I will send my beloved son. Perhaps, or perhaps your translation says surely, it's translated two different ways here. Perhaps they will respect him. And I think, because scholars have really wrestled over this. I've heard some scholars say, you know, this landowner must be a dunce. Hello, if they beat a servant, beat a servant, beat a servant, guess what they're going to probably do to your son? Hello? Some people say that. Not exactly, but that's really what it comes down to. But I'm of a little bit of a different opinion. What if you have a landowner that is very patient and kind? And he's been pushed three times. And in his mind, if he sends his son, it's the only one he could send that they would surely listen to. Of all, of, of, another servant's not going to work. But a son, maybe they'll listen to a son. So he talks to the son. Apparently the son is in agreement and the son goes. 
And honestly, folks, with what happens next, I want you to listen to how the crowd responds to the end of this parable because they are messed up by it too. Listen to this. Because nobody expected this to happen. When the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another saying, this is the heir, let us kill him that the inheritance may be ours. Now that's stupid. Oh, here comes the son of the vine grower. What they should have said is, wow, this is so important that he's sending his actual son to talk to us. We better talk turkey with him, explain how we're feeling, and we better give him something. That's what you're expecting, aren't you? And instead they say, here comes the son. Let's kill him so the land will become ours. Are you kidding me? In all my reading, I, 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 could, I could find no example where that's ever happened in antiquity where rental farmers kill an heir and they think they're going to get the land from the father. Like, I mean, like that. so when you're reading the story, when you read that part, you ought to say, now that's stupid. Verse 15, they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. And Jesus asked this question, what therefore will the owner of the vineyard do to them? What's left? He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. And when the people heard it, they said, may it never be. The people were saying, that's an awful story. That's a tragedy. We don't like that. That should never, ever, ever happen. But it's happening right before their faces in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you see? They didn't like the story. They shouldn't like the story. The story makes no sense. It's the vine grower. He owns that thing. He sends his son. And rather than respect him, they kill him. Verse 17. But he looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? And he quotes from Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Jesus is telling us the story of what the nation of Israel will do to his son. How well did the nation of Israel do with prophets? Not very good. One would come after another. And Jesus back in Luke chapter 7 and Luke chapter 11 will talk about that. He'll say, prophet after prophet comes to you one after another after another. And what you do is you either reject them or you kill them. And God's wrath is building up against the nation. It keeps saying, no, no, no. What will happen when he sends his beloved son? And they still say no, no, no. You know what's interesting about this passage? 
I learned that the sun will die. But I also learned that the sun will be the ultimate victor. See, that's why he quotes from Psalm 118. If you went back and read the whole psalm, you'll find out there's another verse quoted from there saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is what they said when, they came, when Jesus initially came into Jerusalem. Here's the point. Psalm 118 is all about God's king who will rule. Every enemy will be put down. And it finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ himself. There will be a day when the nation of Israel will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But not now. Jesus said that will be the future sometime. And what you find is this. The son who they kill is the son who will resurrect as the king of kings and lord of lords. And those that oppose him will either fall, I mean, I, I, I've never fallen from a cliff. If I did, I, I wouldn't be here to tell you about it. But rocks don't move very well, do they? If you fall from a cliff onto a rock, you're killed. And if you're out mountain hiking and there's a huge rock, cliff rock up top and it falls, you're killed. The only thing you can do is stand on a rock. That's a good thing. But if you're opposing a rock, that's a bad thing. And what he's telling us is the one that you kill is the one that will be king of kings and lord of lords. And anyone that opposes him will be destroyed at the end of the day. That's how it works in his kingdom. It's kind of sobering, isn't it, folks? Listen to, oh, Jesus is here is called the cornerstone. Do, do you know the, the, um, the temple where Jesus was speaking? Jesus speaking in the temple area. It's about 33 acres, the, the area. So it's, it's a big area you can really speak in. And the, some of the cornerstone um, rocks that Herod had actually built were about seven feet long. They, they weighed, I think they weighed around like eight tons. I mean, they were, they were just massive. So an eight-ton stone, if it just dropped through the ceiling on me, what chance do I have? Zero. <laughs> you know what I mean? Forget it. You're done. And in telling this story, they were saying, by what authority do you do what you're doing? And Jesus says, well, I won't tell you directly. I'll do something better. I'll tell you a story. It is God's story. And it is God who has reached out patiently again and again to the nation of Israel saying, look, I have a kingdom purpose. I have things I want done in this world. You're supposed to be the ones that are doing it. I will send prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet and you will say, no, 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 no. I will send my very son and you will kill him. But he will ultimately reign and he will win at the end of the day. And he will allow that kingdom purpose to go on, continued with another group rather than you. That's my plan. Did the religious leaders figure out the parable? Well, look at what it says here in verse 19. And the scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour. But they feared the people. For they understood that he spoke this parable against them. 
They got it. They knew exactly what he was saying. They were shamed. They were mocked. They weren't mocked. They were, they were shamed in the, in, 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 with all the people around when Jesus finished. And it was, it was a very difficult thing for them. So here's my question. In Jesus' day, the religious status quo, the establishment, said we will have it our way. We will kill the son. And Jesus says, God will allow for all that. But you will not ultimately kill the son. For the son will die and resurrect and rule and his kingdom will go on and on and on. For he's king of kings and lord of lords. Do you think Jesus threatens our status quo? Perhaps you're here with us today. Perhaps you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior. I don't know. My guess is most people here are believers. The vast majority. I want you to know something. Christ will mess up your status quo. He will. But it will be the greatest thing that ever happened to you if you come to faith in him. I mean, you can either stand on the rock or be crushed by the rock. They are the only two options in life, folks. My, our prayer for you, if you don't know Jesus, is don't, don't try to say, well, we'll stop them. Try to, it's like a kid trying to stop a wave on the seashore. Come on. It can't happen. You'll either be destroyed by him or changed by him. They're your only two options. Would you come to him? Would you bow before him and ask him to forgive you of your sins and be your Lord and Savior, make, make you one of his followers? That can happen today, and it'll be the greatest decision you ever made. Yeah, he'll mess up your status quo. No, no question about it. He'll rearrange your life, absolutely. But it'll be the best thing that could ever happen to you. Although it's not the direct application. Do you ever find yourself as a Christian becoming a little bit complacent with life? Settling into a status quo? Comfortable? It's nice to call yourself a Christian. Check in on Sunday. Come to the chapel. Sing the songs. Even listen to the guy up there speaking. Walk out with a smile on your face. Get a little bit of food to eat. Check out till next Sunday. Is that possible? Jesus is the king of kings. You know, like that lion on the, the lion, the witch in the wardrobe. He is not tame, folks. He is not tame. But he is good. Don't live comfortable status quo life. As if he's everything when you know in your heart of hearts he isn't. If you ride a bike, you either fall or you go forward. The Christian life 
it's the same way. Yeah, I mean, how long can you balance without moving? We know Jesus. We love Jesus. In a fresh way, let's give her all to him. For he is the one who has died and who is resurrected for us. I want to, I was supposed to do this earlier and I forgot. I just thought about it now. If I look at my notes, it probably would help me a little bit more. Can I read one passage to you? Because I want to kind of use this as a segue into communion. This, this whole story of people who reject Christ, reject Christ, and kill Christ, and have to come to terms with Christ, it is the very, very story, Peter, who would have heard this story, Peter reflects almost the same story again in Acts chapter 2. Can I read just a couple verses to you? I'm going to anyway, I shouldn't ask you. Let me read a couple verses to you. Because what if people out there go, no, don't stop. Well, I'm going to anyway, so here it is. Listen to this, Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Verse 32. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from God the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. And verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know this for certain, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? That's always the right response when you hear that message, isn't it? Wow, that was us. But you know what? Doug Finkbeiner would have done the exact same thing in that day. And for all of us, when we hear the story of an incredible God who has sent his son, who has been rejected, who nonetheless dies and resurrects as king of kings, there's only one response. If that's who he is, what shall we then do? You either come to him or as a believer, you submit to him. That's our two options. Let's pray.